Hello and welcome to PCs Own Lives. My name is Richie Shoemaker and in this episode, rather than have a whole bunch of people remembering one issue of the mag, I'll be talking to one person, Vicky McDonald, about a whole bunch of things, mostly PCs Own related. Vicky is a veteran freelance designer that worked on the first issues of PCs Own in 1993 and in 98 was behind a huge redesign after which PCs Own overtook PC Gamer once again as the best-selling PC games mag in the UK. Vicky wasn't the only McDonald to work on PC Zone. Her younger brother Duncan did too, writing hundreds of reviews and taking on the alter ego of Mr. Cursor. Sadly, Duncan died in 2017, but thanks to Vicky, his book South Coast Diaries finally saw the light of day. If you ever enjoyed Duncan's writing, go to Amazon right now and buy a copy. That's South Coast Diaries. Buy it now. Hi, Vicky. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to the uh, podcast. Um, let's start at the beginning. Um, and how you started out in magazine publishing? Uh, I had a fairly legendary start in magazine publishing uh, because the first proper job I really had was Smash It's magazine, which was an absolutely massive magazine in the 1980s. I mean, I went to art school and I did a graphics degree and did some crappy jobs, but uh, always wanted to work on Smash It's, which is a real cult mag. And so that's where I ended up. And that was a brilliant team it was before computers, really, and learnt my, uh, learnt my job there. Um, when was this? Sorry. 1984, five, I started on Smash Hits. It's a very crap time for pop because it was just after things like Duran Duran had gone down the dumper. <laughs> and it was literally when you had things like Nick Kershaw, the really terrible stuff. Um, but it was good fun. And then and then you had sort of Kylie Minogue coming in, but I kind of moved on by that point. But the, the, the staff were brilliant. I met some really brilliant people. You had like Dave Hepworth and Mark Ellen, who were sort of the mm. kind of head honchos behind it at that point. And they did Old Grey Whistle Test. And then there was a very brilliant editor called Steve Bush that I worked with, who became instrumental later on in my career. Mm. Um, but that was how I started out. And after I designed there for about a year and a half, I thought... Um, Actually, journalists have a much better time and they get to travel. So I moved over to being a freelance journalist and I got to interview lots of uh, pop stars and travel around. Oh, so any, any in particular? Depeche Mode, maybe? No, I did interview The Cure and I had the um, amazing experience of sitting in a, a kind of roadside travel cafe in France with Robert Smith and The Cure. And again, by this point, The Cure was sort of down the dumper in the UK. They'd gone out of fashion. But the French absolutely hero worshipped Robert Smith. And so it was like sitting in a transport cafe with (laughs) with a rock god. (laughs) And I thought everybody else was agog. Um, My my highlight was interviewing uh, Brian Ferry. I got flown over to um, Mm. France. Because I was just a freelancer, I got all the people that nobody else wanted to do, bizarrely. Nobody wanted to do Brian Ferry. Uh, And I did because I was... I loved Roxy Music in the early 70s, and they were why I went on to do art and design. So, yeah, interviewing Brian Ferry in um, Paris, that was good. I got flown over to L.A. to interview some bloke that nobody's ever heard of who never even released his single. I can't remember his name, so that didn't get used. And then they said, oh, well, you're in L.A. for a week, so you can interview Eurythmics. And that was really brilliant, interviewing Eurythmics. They were so interesting. Um, So, yeah, it was fun. But I'm not really into drinking and drugs, and you really had to be to be a rock journalist. So um, I stopped doing that after a while. I'm, I'm interesting then. How did you get to to get onto computer mags? Yeah, because because I'd worked on Smash Shits. It was like the massive magazine that everybody loved because it was so funny. Um, 
and my brother Duncan, my late brother Duncan MacDonald, had started yeah. working on your Sinclair. Yeah. And so, which is the, like the granddaddy of all these Dennis mags. Yeah. And um, they wanted it to look a bit more like Smash Hits. And he said, oh, my sister works on Smash Hits. So that is how I got involved. So I think Teresa, they said, oh, you know, I can't remember what it was, doing some redesigning or something. Uh, do you want to come in and do some freelancing? And I did, because by this point, I kind of didn't want to do um, writing anymore. So I thought, I'm not very it's just boring writing. I like designing. So um, <laughs> I'm just not, I find it really, really hard work. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm quite good, but and I wrote for the face, you know, big man yeah, at the time, yeah. but it was not really my, my love. You've really got to love writing mm. and I, and I don't, and I do really love designing. So I went back to designing and it was just bonkers. I remember turning up your Sinclair. I, I might also add computers. Okay. Now I've been using a Mac since 1984. Because wow. we were on Smash Hits, we were all well, it was before computers, obviously, and they used to just do drawings. They used to do like drawings of what the magazine should look like. And then you'd send it quite accurate drawings. And then you'd send it off to like a layout house where they'd like typeset it all and stick it all down, bits of paper, and send it back on bikes and you'd look at it. So it was pre computer, very long process to designing magazines. And didn't require much technical skill on the part of graphic designers. And then one day somebody said, oh, that some companies just put this weird computer into the office and they say you can design on it. And it was like a 1984 Mac. They were mm. just launching it. And they gave these Macs to places that they thought were influential and they thought Smash Hits was influential. But we didn't really know what to do with it. You could just sort of draw squiggles with it. So we just drew millions and millions of squiggles on this Mac and printed them out on a dot matrix printer. And um, those are like in the background for a few issues of Smash Hits since sort of about 1984. You can see loads of sort of dot matrix printouts of squiggles in the background with song lyrics in front. And that's because we were messing around with this Mac. And then we thought well, there's not much else we could do with this. So we kind of gave up. But then that's when computers already started to come in. So gradually people would be writing. In those days, people were still writing on typewriters and it was very noisy. And then people started writing on Amstrads, which actually revolutionized things. It seemed bizarre. And then the Macs came in more. And my point of this is that when I went to Dennis Publishing, it was very mm. avant-garde in terms of technology because that was the first place that i encountered computers they used computers because it was that you know they, they published computer magazines um i think a lot of people know that your sinclair was meant to was, was kind of trying to be kind of smash it for, for computer games they didn't realize it was also a visual desire as well I can't remember. It was just really, it doesn't really look like Smash Hits, but it's much more of an attitude, really. That was just very, very funny. It was its own thing. It wasn't like Smash Hits. I think it was just an idea they had. And that was at the very end of your Sinclair, really, because then after that, it became zero. And then that's what I worked on. Yeah. Well, what, was, what, is it, what was it like in the office? Well, this first office that was like in a cubby hole on Newman Street, um, or it might be Rathbone Place, they moved because eventually Felix then gathered everybody into his swanky building. He had a couple of different swanky buildings. Kind of forgotten where this first one was. Um, the suddenly, But the thing is about magazines, right? Everybody's in their own little bubble. There might have been other magazines on the lower floors, but basically everybody just despised everybody else on every other magazine and had no interest <laughs> in them. Literally people yeah. only cared. It was like your own club. They were like clubs. It was like being in a Tufty club. It was like being a really weird Tufty club being in there the kind of PC zone, you know, game zone bubble. Um, and, it, you know, and all magazine offices, even to this day, because, you know, newspaper offices and things, they're really horrible. They're always just really, it's like literally working in 
sort of storeroom. I mean, my studio I'm sitting in now looks like a storeroom. It's the same because you just have all these ma- magazines. And in those days, you know, it was still all done by cutting up bits of paper and so on. So it was just like living in the middle of a jumble sale. So they're always really tiny, really not enough room, really ancient furniture, just crap everywhere. It was too difficult for the cleaners to clean it. And uh, but people and people just, you know, spending sort of, on a monthly, spending two weeks just messing around and not really doing anything, and then spending two weeks in a massive panic, and then the last week sort of sleeping under the desk or whatever. I mean, those days people used to do that kind of thing. They probably don't do now. Um, so you had a real camaraderie, but people only really cared about their own magazine, and they despised and the editorial despised advertising, and you know, so. <laughs> Sounds familiar. It yeah, it was fun. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so he moved out of this very small building to a much nicer office. Actually, after that, Felix had nice buildings, um, but it was still the same thing. They, you know, the building we had their own floor or whatever, and it's a bit of a tip. Uh, and certainly, I think at that point, you became more aware of the other magazines, and it did have more of a sense of camaraderie amongst the yeah. different magazines. I think. So, what, would that have been Bolsover Street? Yeah, Bolsover okay. Street. Yeah, you know, I was only ever a freelancer, so. You know, I was I was I was in and out. I mean, with um, Game Zone or with Zero, which Duncan Hemphill was sort of I think he's meant to be the junior designer, but he did end up designing it. Yeah. And because design, one of the, the thing you learned at art school in those days, you didn't learn how to be a designer. I have the faintest idea how to be a designer when I left art school. But they taught you how to be really, really difficult. <laughs> they taught you how to be really scary and unapproachable so that you could manage clients. You didn't realise you were learning this, but you just learned how to be a bolshie designer. So Duncan had learned this lesson quite well and everybody was really scared of him. They were too scared to ask him to change his designs. <laughs> they didn't like them. <laughs> so they said to me, Oh, you you go and tell Duncan you know, Trees would say, Oh, I'm not very really happy with this. You go and tell Duncan that um, you know he's got to change it because they didn't want to tell him. Uh, which he would have been fine with. Um, so that was sort of, I just came in as an extra pair of hands. But Duncan was a brilliant, brilliant designer. It was obvious from mm. the start he was a brilliant designer. So I just always liked working with good designers. So we got on really, really well because we respected each other. Oh, well, well, Duncan, of course, was the launch editor of, of Zone. And, yeah, he um, did a fantastic job, yeah. And and you worked on Zone for, I mean, solidly, I think, for that first year. Can you remember about, about the launch of Zone and how it came yeah, about? Yeah, well. I do remember, I think I came in, I mean, Duncan, obviously, for Duncan, it was an absolute work of, um, you know, Mm. love. He just put so much, it was the first time he'd really had his head to completely do something, and he put so much work into it, so perfect. Um, And that was like the high point, that was when it was all done on a computer, and computers had got sophisticated enough, amazing, in 92-ish, but um, I think it was. What year was the launch? Do you know? I don't yeah, it was, um, well, 93, so yeah, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was quite cranky. Clark Express, you know, we were all working on Macs. And because Dennis had Mac user magazine, it was like the holy grail of, sort of Macs anyway. Um, and so it was all done on a Mac, hmm. uh, even that early. And, it, you know, you suddenly, and it was Clark Express in those days. And the level of sophistication, if you knew what you were doing, which Duncan did because he was very techy, you could just do it much more perfect. You could make everything much more perfect than you could have done in the days when you had to cut out bits of paper and do drawings and send it to some paste-up artist. You just couldn't, you didn't have much control and you couldn't really uh, make it exact. Something's too hard. It just had to be something that could be done by the technology. And suddenly you had full control. So Duncan did a beautiful job. And yeah. really, it's just too much work for one person. So we'd worked, you know, I'd worked with him as a freelancer. I bossed him. He bossed me. He just got me in to help out because we trusted each other. And I was very happy to follow his designs, anything he didn't have time to do. 
you know, and it's just fun. So I ended up being their regular freelancer, you know, for quite a long time, I guess. Um, mm. And I would just go in in the busy times and do a few days, you know, a month. And I'd be working on other mags. I did lots of other things. I ended up, though, working my way up to being, um, I mean, my, my specialization was launching magazines right. that weren't doing very well and being like a redesign relaunch specialist sort of thing here's what's wrong with the editorial and the design and you could do all this but because i was coming from a design perspective um you know showing how they could make it better and then going in this difficult job actually going in and um almost retraining the staff or you know sh- coming up with the whole new templates for the design but then helping yeah. them implement it and uh, i ended up doing that and so i was doing that kind of thing for other magazines but I also just did layout work. But I ended up being the art director of Dennis Publishing for a bit, sort of as a freelance consultant art director of Dennis for a bit. And that was the period of the relaunch. Relaunch. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. But let's, let's, uh, back to the, that first year, though. Do you have any particular memories of that first year of Zone? And, and also why? I'm interested why, because there was all... there was this cut-off period when kind of Paul Lakin left as an editor and everyone seemed to kind of disappear at the same time. Yeah, well, there you go. That's what happens. Um, yeah, well, my early memories then, oh, well, Paul Lakin was just lovely. He was just a brilliant editor. It was such a nice staff. Paul, Lord Paul. As Lord Paul, yes. Know him. Lord Paul, my brother came up with that. Duncan came up with that, I think. Lord Paul, because Paul wasn't really posh. And, but he'd been to, um, I think he like, lived in Cambridge. He went to Oxford or lived in Oxford and went to Cambridge or something. Right. And for some reason, this legend came up. But also, he was interested in flags. And I think that my brother had a lot to do with this. So he'd call him Lord Paul and say, oh, he's been to Oxford and Cambridge and he's a flag expert. He's into vexillology. And this all entered the sort of <laughs> folklore of, uh, you know, the, the mags that Paul edited. And uh, But Paul was a really good editor. He was quite quiet, sort of steady hand on the tiller. Mm. Uh, but it was a stressful job, I think. I remember he was really, really into, there was a submarine game. And you think, where's Paul? <laughs> He'd be sitting <laughs> down the side. Yeah, I can really picture the office now. It was quite grim. This is when we were in Bolsover Street. Yeah. He'd be sitting at one of these computers at the side. And in his mind, he was just in a submarine at the bottom of the sea in World War Two. And you think, okay, so. this <laughs> 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 beeps. Um, but he was a really good editor and he ran, an, he ran a nice ship. And I just think when an editor changes, it's like your parent leaving or dying or something. People really cleave to their editors. That's been the case wherever I've worked, really. Mm. People cry when editors leave. I remember when I was on Smash Hits and Mark Ellen said he was leaving. I'd only been working there really briefly and I just burst into tears. You know, it's normal because you feel like they run the whole thing and they're your parent if they're a good editor. So Paul just had his own team that had worked with him for a long, long time. And I think when he went, you know, it probably just wasn't the same. And, you know, you can't, Everybody's getting on a bit by that point. They're kind of in their thirties, um, and they want to move. They want to move on, mm. you know. And magazine times are changing, so I guess people just just move on, you know. So journalists all kind of move into PR or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, you just have to move on. I mean, it was always people were always selling magazines. You wake up in the morning and Felix would have sold a magazine to someone else, so you never knew if your magazine was even going to be there the next week. So it was seemed like quite a precarious time although looking back at it, it wasn't well I, su- I suppose like you say a lot of people a lot of those people worked on zero as well so it's been in a way it's been quite a long run they'd all been working together for a very very long time and it was a team that ended up on pc zone mm. but i guess paul decided to leave which you can't really blame him and you know started a new career as an international spy or something <laughs> and um 
but uh, he was just a really, really good editor, and it's just such a nice team. And um, yeah, so I guess people think, oh, it's not the same. And when a new editor comes in, they want to bring in their own people as well. So it's just normal that often when editors change, staff change. So I guess people just drifted off. I'm, I'm just thinking back to my time. I, I mean, I worked under how many editors? One, two, maybe three or four. I don't remember crying when any of them left. Um, because you're a bloke. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all the girls who cry. So it's, you know, PC Zone has, has done its first year and you kind of disappear off to. Oh, to, yeah, to... it's coming back to me. Uh, so Duncan Hemphill, okay, because don't forget my kind of contacts, Duncan Hemphill. Well, Duncan Hemphill, because Guinness is a massive company and they mm. had a lot of other magazines. And I was right, that's right. And I was writing a lot because Duncan and I were very expert on Macs at that point. And I did a lot of writing for Mac user. And then they had a magazine called The Mac. And I'd write how-tos. I'd earn a double income. I'd be like designing because I was really good on style sheets and just setting up, you know, style guides for magazines. I'd be literally doing my work and then writing an article about it at the same time as I was doing it. So I'd do lots of articles for Mac user about, you know, expert quark, express tips. And uh, Duncan then went off, I think, to uh, work for, I think he worked on uh, Mac user and, the Mac. So he was working for those. So I then went off and I started freelancing on those rather than freelancing mm. on the on the zone. So yeah, we kind of moved around within Dennis. It wasn't that we all left, but people just, it's a big company and that's the point. You can move up to an older sort of, you know, dem- different demographic magazine. So yeah, we're working on more and things like uh, What Hi-Fi and stuff. Okay. And as I was working my way up to doing, you know, relaunches and... Uh, Okay, well, on on that subject, then it, it's five. I think five years it was after after the zone launched. You yeah, um, incredible. You you oversee a pretty radical redesign of the magazine. This was in yeah uh, ninety eight, early ninety eight. I think. Can can you remember how that came about? Because I don't think well, Z- I think Zone was doing okay at that point. I cut, you know, I was just looking through my archive disc and it must be all in emails because I haven't got any paper. I normally keep. I used to write design proposals and everything. And I haven't got any record of what, and there were obviously were a lot of detailed discussions went on, but I haven't got any record of it unless I managed to get some ancient email files opened. Um, I remember what I did before that. Of course, I actually wrote a book. I went to Australia for a bit and I wrote, um, well, I did various projects. And one big one I did was I did a, a wrote an, a book about this artist, she's famous in Australia, she's dead, called Rosalie Gascoigne. And this guy that had been the, uh, my editor at Smash Hits, Steve Bush, he ended up making a fortune in magazines and went to live in um, Australia and had a big publishing company in Australia. And then he got into fine art because this does impact on my career. And then we did this, decided to do this book about this artist, Rosalie Gascoigne, which is a really beautiful fine art book. So I just come back from doing this amazing fine art book, which I finished in 97. So I guess that's when I kind of sort of like took my design career more seriously and ended up doing this kind of freelance sort of design consultant role at Dennis and I guess the first big thing was there were a few magazines like Escape I think I can't remember Mm. Um, but I guess this redesign of PC Zone was a big thing and I can't remember because I haven't got I can't remember what it was looking like before the redesign that's the thing I know what it looked like at the very start when Duncan designed it in the early 90s but I don't know how it ended up it it didn't change a massive amount from there it had these kind of kind of retro kind of 50s like diner fonts i think in in various places but i think in terms of i think sales wise it was doing okay i mean i remember being quite surprised when the idea of this 
um, redesign was floated. And I and I assume um, when they brought in Mark Hyam, who I, I'm not sure if he came from Future or if he was moved over from Escape magazine. I can't remember. Uh, now. Mark come from Escape. Mark come from Escape. Yeah, because he was editing Escape, wasn't he? And then, so remember. yeah, so he came on as, as editor in chief. I think it was a bit weird in the office because we our editor at the time, Jeremy Wells, was um, kind of still floating about, but he wasn't really involved in that kind of redesign. So it was a little bit of awkwardness there in the office. But yeah, I think the whole redesign thing was a was a bit of a shock. But when we realised the kind of the, the how much was being redesigned, and it was effectively a relaunch of the magazine. You know, there was even oh, talk of yeah. there was even talk of possibly would we consider giving it another name? Yeah. Um, so it was almost like. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a top to bottom thing. I mean, can you remember much about the gun of the, what your remit was? Well, I guess at that point I had my own office, like a nice office on the top floor, because I was just every, everything that was wrong about design was coming across my desk. I wasn't really involved in the politics. That's why I like being freelance. But clearly they weren't happy with PC Zone. No, it's very expensive, very expensive, and really difficult undertaking to relaunch a magazine and it was a relaunch mm. and that's why my job had been redesigned relaunch because they're the same thing often if they're too frightened to sort of say to staff we're going to relaunch it they just say we're going to redesign it but it's the same thing especially yeah. when i do it because it's almost like well you're not structuring it's what's in it you're not structuring it properly nobody can find what's there or often it's a case of there's really good stuff there but it's just so jumbled nobody can see what it is or there's no structure sometimes it is it's all really terrible and we need to get rid of some writers and if we do a massive scary relaunch people will just leave and we can get a new team that happens i'm not saying that was the case with pc mm. so often it's a way of getting rid of an editor that happens again and again throughout my career publishers aren't happy with the editor the editor won't go if they bring in a redesign it's such hard work and it requires the editor to actually step up and do stuff and often they'll just leave um just making this it's just trying to make things uncomfortable for people so um that's how it always would work so that probably was the same thing so i don't know why they were unhappy with pc zone must have been unhappy with it and they must have clearly thought there was still a market there but it wasn't um meeting its market and they had to make it more correct for its market. And that, that was what it would have been. And I definitely, I would say, looking at it, making it a bit, look a bit older and a bit more sophisticated. I mean, magazine design has really moved on a lot. I would say, looking back at from the 92 to 96, which is when computers were coming in a lot more and you had a lot of younger designers coming and who'd started on the computer. And it was in the age of, uh, you know, sort of rave culture mm. and so on. 90s were good, you know. Um, it was fun positive time but looking at the design it got more and more babyish and that actually was the thing then it was all big kind of rounded corners i remember doing it me and duncan we'd have big competitions to see who did the biggest most blobby rounded corners but you look back on it and it was actually horrible um <laughs> so 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 we, we was it like a blank slate basically that you were like given free reign to change no no there would have been a lot of research done we've done loads of research this is what people like this is what they like I didn't need all that. I could literally, because I've worked on, I love magazines and I've done it all my life. I could, me and Duncan Hempel could do this. A lot of people can, magazine professionals. You literally spend an hour looking through it and look at the competition. And mags are all the same fundamentally. They're just, they're like skeletons with different content hung in them. Mm-hmm. And then the design is like a skin on website is just the same sort of thing. You've got your content, you've got to structure it correctly. It's always the kind of same kind of stuff. It generally has to go in the same kind of order. People expect the same kind of thing. 
And then literally how it looks is a skin that you put over it. And that's the last thing. And you can change that quite easily. Um, with PCs, I think everything was wrong. You know, it was structurally, it was jumbled. Nobody really knew what was going on. Probably no, no consistency. The design looked babyish. But that would have been the only thing. Um, and so by the late 90s, because I think it had uh, computer design consolidated, it was starting to move in an upward path where it would kind of reach its peak and it got very very sophisticated so it was on its upward spiral again and it was to just make it a lot more tighter and um, fitting a huge amount in I mean it was a really a heyday of magazines just before they all died sort of late mm. 90s yeah and it was all you know lads mags were coming in it did all get a lot it's interesting one of the reasons I got out of magazines because I realized when I'd started on um, Game Zone in the early 90s there were a lot of women around and it was just quite a nice sort of environment. By the time I got to the PC zone, late 90s, and I was up sort of on the higher floors at Dennis, and Dennis was launching a lot of lads, you know, had Maxim and things. Yeah. It wasn't sexist, um, but I just realised that I was the only woman. It was just got very blokey. And I just mean blokey, not, not sexist at all, because they were good magazines. There was a lot of really nice people there. But it was just very blokey. It was different. And I just thought, uh, you have to work on what you're interested in. I kind of quite like computer games magazines and the design aspect of it. But I thought, I'm not interested in men's magazines. That's not what I want to work on. So everything was getting more lad magish. That's the other thing. Um, PC Zone wasn't, it was a bit actually, because with that Laura Croft cover, which was the third yeah. one, um, was specifically trying to be quite lad maggish because of course they'd had escape. Yeah, so the whole culture, and as we now know, looking back, and also the other mags, you know, I'd worked on Smash Hits, that was a pop magazine, but then the companies I was doing that kind of thing for wanted to start doing TV magazines. So I worked on a magazine called TV Hits, but I hate television and I just thought it was all pap and I wasn't interested. So I didn't want to do that. And then you got the celebrity. EMAP started doing celebrity magazines. And it was all about how cruel could you be to all these celebrities, you know. And it was just yeah. revolting, actually. And at the time, I thought it was revolting. So I stopped doing it. PC Zone, I'm not definitely not tying with that brush because it was nothing like that at all. But that was the environment where magazines, computers had come in. Everything had got much quicker because it was on computer. The turnover was much, much quicker. The yeah. internet had come in. I mean, I've, just, I've been on the internet since 1992. I was on the internet before uh, I used Mozilla. I was on the internet before you had worldwide web pages. Um, you know, people, people my age know computers inside out because we were there when it started um so yeah so and you had high speed at this point you know a magazine would have a high speed data line um yeah so yeah, everything had got much much i mean it, it wasn't the days when you had three days you'd send it to the layout off and three days later to come back it literally was you were doing it all there in the house you didn't have to have any outside agencies images were all becoming digital by that point which really speeded things yeah digital cameras started coming um it just made everything so much quicker and so everything just got crueler and harsher but at the same time it got much more sophisticated so everything looked better and so that that was the era of the new pc zone so it was almost like relaunching it for this new faster sharper crueler yeah. era can, can you remember what the process i mean when to go back to to kind of when we went to uh, we, we were all taken down to brighton um oh yes i was totally involved i can remember this did you okay, did you come down i don't know if you came down to brighton did you Yes, that uh, conference was that was designed by me. That was I made that. That was completely, completely my conference. So what happened was that was brilliant. Yeah. So head honcho of Dennis Publishing said, um, Alistair Ramsey. Alistair Ramsey. Yeah. Um, my, that was who I answered, Alistair Ramsey. Okay, we're going to have. Well, it was my suggestion because the thing is, Emap used to have these amazing conferences 
uh, like smash hits and things every year you just go away on a, it wasn't a jolly it was hard work it was wasn't these days people would all go and do zip wires but in those days it was like go away and reinvent a magazine they were brilliant conferences they were really fun it was like being at art school for two days and you'd go to go to a hotel we'd have to take loads of pencils and pens down and say if you were reinventing this magazine from scratch what would you do um you know and if you have, have a new name or you have different stuff in it and everybody would be given projects and it was my idea and i said to alistair well uh you know the emat we used to do this kind of thing it's a good idea so they decided to do it but then i and he said well you've got to program this conference and i thought i don't know what to do so i got in touch with steve bush who had been the editor that i'd worked for at smash hits who had then had this very successful publishing company in australia and he just literally wrote me down just a list of it. He probably told me on the phone and I wrote it down. He just said, do this, this, this. He just told me exactly mm. what to do. So this conference was actually programmed by a guy called Steve Bush, who has now disappeared into the ether. I don't have contact with him anymore, but he's a genius at publishing. And uh, I just did what he said. And I remember running around buying pencils and getting it all together and programming it. Yeah, we spent two days down there. So I was... Yeah. Um, well, we, and, well know, he, it, sorry, I was going to say, well, we all, yeah, like, like you say, we we're all in different groups. We all went through yeah. all sorts of magazines, gay yeah, magazines, women's me. magazines, yeah. um, just taking ideas. It, that were, No, I, I remember yeah. it very well. It was great fun. Well, that was, was all, that was all programmed by me. And that is what then fed back into PC Zone and it frees people up. And I remember because videos had come and it was even like, oh, they've got to make a video. And Charlie Booker was there and he was already quite well known. Yeah, and I just there. thought, oh, my God, I've got. I've got to tell Charlie Booker to go and make a video. You know, it's like te- grandmother and eggs. Te- you know, your grandmother teaching you to suck eggs. I've got to tell Charlie Booker to go and make a video. And of course, he made the best video. I was so stressed out by the whole thing, you know. I, I haven't got any memory of it. Somewhere, I'm sure I must have the minutes because I wrote it all down, what I had to do. And I guess that fed back into then what we did with PC Zone. Well, yeah, we all had our ideas. I think, I guess, Mark... Mark Hyam would have collected a lot of them. And I guess after that point, um, I guess we left you to it. I mean, we carried on with the mag as it was. We were still working on the old design. So we didn't know how long it would take. Um, so this would have been early in 98. Because we went to Brighton, it was definitely rainy. So it wasn't yeah. it wasn't exactly a holiday. Um, yeah, but we all went back with our notes and, and our hangovers. And um, My only memory from that is, apart from like Charlie Brooker going out on the beach doing the best video... Um, because, you know, like the ad people, as I say, editorial ads are just different species. I remember once getting a real laugh in some meeting where the editorial and ads were all there. And I just said, oh, the thing is, everybody in editorial were all bullied and the people in ads were all the bullies. And everybody had hysterics for about 10 minutes because I'd obviously hit some massive truth. But in this, we were all there, ads and and editorial, and we all had to talk to each other. And I just, I don't like drinking or staying up late, but I forced myself to stay up late one night with all the ad people. And at the end, somebody said, oh, that's really good. We really appreciate you staying up. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah. So perhaps editorial people should do that kind of thing. I just remember it was quite hard work staying up and making conversation with the ad people, but, you know, because they're (laughs) extroverts. The ad people are all extroverts and the editorial people are all introverts, just completely different kinds of people. And, uh, you know, you need, you need, both. I actually don't remember the ad people there, but now you mention it. Yes, they were. Of course they were. Yeah, yeah, they were. They were nice people, but they were just extroverts and they got energy from talking to people and introverts lose energy from talking to people. So all the introverts are all buggered off to play computer games, you know, and the, and the ad people are all having big, you know, jollies in the bar. 
um, so that's all I remember of it, really. But yeah, and Mark Hyam, of course, so he came across and he was very good. I mean, he was, uh, hmm. yeah, I must have been weird having this person put at the top, but I think they just needed people from outside. It almost was like making a, a new magazine. Although bizarrely, obviously the content was the same because it's still computer reviews. But yeah, looking at it, it was making it much, much more structured, really structured, so you knew exactly where you were, much more grown up feeling, much more like a news magazine, more like sort of the Mac user type approach. Whereas before it had, you know, because it had come out of the zones, it was more like a Sega zone kind of approach, which is sort of for eight year olds. And this is more like a Mac user approach, which is for sort of, you know, 16 year olds plus. I, I don't remember us, I mean, in terms of uh, writing for the new design, it was, we didn't have to do a great deal more. I mean, there was all these, a lot more, lot more intricate box outs, lots more kind of information panels, things like that, um, which wasn't a great, which wasn't hard, I suppose. But I'm kind of interested in terms of, of how all that evolved, because I think after Brighton, like I said, we all kind of just carried on doing what we were doing, went back to the old mag and just waited for things to happen. But I suppose, was it just you and Mark at that point? Mark would come up Mark, and... That's the, that's the nature of being a writer as opposed to being on the editorial staff, because writers just write what they're told to write. They don't get involved. There's so much more to it, you know, all the editing, all the mechanics of it and the subs, you know, all that info. Um it's absolutely packed. I'm looking at it. It's just completely packed. Well, that's the and thing. And it's about getting as yeah. much yeah, into it as you can while keeping it legible. But that's what people like. They buy it for information. They want to feel it's the most. And the writing's got to be good. I mean, the writing was, you know, good writing, I presume. I didn't. Bo- I don't bother about that. I assume somebody else has made sure that the writing is good, um, which it certainly did used to be on the, on the zones, which is, you know, people will come back. But it's, the sad thing is people will buy magazines with, you know poor writing as well as long as it's got the information they want but you don't really get a cult magazine unless it's got that camaraderie in the staff and it's almost like a little world and mm. they're writing well and you can tell it's a little world which i think was somewhat lost by this late period i think that was something that was disappearing from magazines in general looking at it it just looks like a, a very informative magazine it doesn't look like something with a vast amount of personality oh Contentious. I think. I think. It, I think it was still there. I think it was. Well, it's I haven't still, read it, so I don't. I don't no, know. fair enough. I haven't read fair it, enough. But I mean, but it, it's also ad driven. You've got to remember, it's ad driven. They would yeah. ad people would have been saying, "We don't like this. We don't like that." So it would be also doing what the ad people wanted a certain kind of environment for their ads. I mean, it was PC games, and the market had grown up, and they were expensive. These games as well. You know, God, it's also violent. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's a male market. You know, so so it's quite an exciting. Um, relaunched then there was a um the price was obviously well nearly half 2.99 um oh, i didn't realize that yeah it was a yeah big price cut it was a, a big real i don't know if it was cardboard back to the relaunch of two discs if i think it was oh that kind of stuff was all a nightmare i remember that stuff like that's just such a nightmare it's such a nightmare during the first three issues any relaunch is just really really hard work for the first mm. three issues it's so stressful it's so political one of the reasons that i got out i mean i say i can't remember it because i can't remember the politics but one of the reasons i got out of magazine design is because i like designing but only about 25 percent of it is designing that's the easy bit 75 percent of it's politics it's really really political uh, publishing mm. just office politics and so on there's always loads of people who are upset um i got out of being i didn't like being the consultant art director of dennis because you had to like fire people i suddenly was responsible for if you had a magazine that wasn't very well designed you know and you could see there's an art editor who's struggling they're in the wrong job you know they'd be happier if they were doing something else as well and then you know the 
Alistair or whoever would say, well, you know, what we really, do you think this person, we need to get someone else, they've got to go. And I thought, I don't want to be responsible for somebody losing their job at all. I just don't want to do that kind of job. I just like to live my own life. So I left. Um, and at that point, they got they started doing things like Maxim, and they got a brilliant designer called Andy Cowles, who's a really famous designer, who's much better than me for that kind of thing. So after that, they had like this really, really good professional uh, art director called Andy Cowles. Um, but before that, they didn't really have an art director. They had this gap. They called it this, the art director gap. They didn't have an art director. So all the magazines went off in their own different ways. Some had good designers. Some didn't have good designers. A good designer is no use without a good editor. So some had weak editors. If it's badly edited, then you can't really make sense of it as a designer. And they just it was all a bit jumbled. So they were just getting more and more professional. So they kind of got me in and I did it for a bit. But I just was a bit half baked and I wandered off. And then they got Andy Cowles in and it was all really, really good. So that, that was the timeline. But at the same point as late 90s, magazines have, start, have reached their apex, really, and they're probably starting their downward curve. So um, there wasn't a change. Well, we, I know we did have a change of art editor on Zone, but I don't know if it was re- related. I don't know if it was around the time of the redesign. I can't remember when Wag moved on now. Never mind. Oh, Wag, he was a good bloke. I remember Wag. He was, yeah, he was a good bloke. He wasn't a problem. Yeah, no, we had Wag and then we had Phil Clark, who, but I'm not sure if, if because of the redesign. I'll have, I'll, I'm sure I'll ask them, get around to asking them at some point. The thing is the designer, the thing was with the redesign, any decent designer can just follow it. So it wasn't, the issue wasn't with the designer, basically. The well, issue was I would with have, the I would have thought magazine. that I would have thought that uh, for a designer is probably harder to get on board with a new design. I mean, you know, the art editor, for example, who's not involved in the redesign, but I would have thought they would have found it hard to get on board with the new design than the editorial team would, because they've, you know, all the templates have changed. The you know all the layouts are kind of very. Is that not the case? No, no. If you do it properly, like if they respect you. I mean, I'm, when I was in those kind of jobs, just basically just do it. I mean, I'm just very good. I was very professional. I just thought what I was doing was excellent. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any doubts about it. And it was good. It was right. It was what was wanted from the top down. The designer can either, they'll learn something. And often, you know, I, I felt like, well, I'm helping their career because they're working on a better quality thing now. They're learning how to do stuff they didn't know how to do. They're learning the proper way to do templates and style sheets. This is what a proper organized magazine looks like. And if they don't like it, they can leave but I don't remember any mm. issues around I can't literally can't even remember I think they just did did it fine I'm sure I think Duncan Hemphill was involved as well helping out oh really on the redesign um, not designing it but just helping out with layouts and things okay. I'm sure he probably was I can't remember I'd have to look at the we ended up setting up a design studio together me and Duncan so yeah we just both respected each other and we designed the same way so um I definitely designed this all from scratch I've still got uh got color tests from it I remember you know, doing colour tests and everything. Um, it's such a massive job, but I'm sure Duncan was in, involved okay. doing layouts. So, so how do you look back on that that redesign, that zone redesign? Where does it rank in your in your in your? Uh... Yeah, high, high, <laughs> very high, very high indeed. I think it was like a pinnacle of that kind of design. It was really, really packed. Um, yeah, I didn't. It was laid out. I, mean, I didn't lay it all out. It was laid out. Looking at it, I wouldn't have laid all this out. What a nightmare! Um, definitely <laughs> was laid out by Phil or whoever the team were. They were obviously up for it because it's really, really well designed. You know, it's really well laid out. They obviously followed it 
you know, exactly. I would do, I think I would do a couple of example layouts and say, do this. Yeah, that's right. I remember them coming up now, the designs coming up and I was saying, okay, but keep all the images together, block them together, don't scatter them around. It's got to be really obvious what goes with everything else. You've got to have a proper visual flow. It's all that kind of thing. It sounds obvious, but so many designers just can't do it or didn't have not been taught to do it. I had good teachers. It just depends who your mentors have been. I'd had very, very good mentors. So then I would try to be a good mentor to other people. Um you know, and then people get the swing of it and they think, oh, yeah, it's quite good. You know, it's not about telling people off. It's just about developing your skill. You only do that by, by practice. So um, did you say you, you kind of stuck around for a couple? Did you like the first three issues? Of, three I issues. Was in, I was involved in three issues really, really intensively. I think the third one being the Laura Croft. Where we read Because the first two covers are horrible. I didn't like them. We were just told we had to do them like that. That first cover was just the covers are always a nightmare. And actually, nobody really cares what the cover's like. And nobody really cares what the logo's like either. You know, they just get used to it. People worry too much about logos. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the second issue. It's got millions and millions of squares on it. And that was almost just like a joke. How many pictures? I was having a joke with myself. What is the most images that I can put onto a cover? I'm going to see if I can do a cover that's got more pictures on it than any other cover. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I quite like those. Well, maybe not the second one, but the, the first one. It was, was covered. It was covered. Was the thing good. is, it was covered over by a flap. You couldn't see yeah. it. That's the whole point. When you were designing, in those days, you know, people would still buy magazines off a shelf. So it was just, and you would only see the top. So you would design it. So you, everything you saw had to just be at the top. That's all you'd see. Hmm. and then there was a massive flat with like three discs on it so you'd only then see the right hand side so most of it was hidden so it didn't actually matter what was on the cover um and then by the third cover it was designing it more like a lads mag and that's which has got lara croft on it and even she was covered by um a disc yeah i, I think know, that's the thing. things we, like little yeah well, you spend so much time thinking about a cover and it's all going to be perfect and then yeah like you say oh we've got to stick a disc over it yeah. Yeah, but that actually does work as a cover even without the disc. And it's even things like mm. it was like ideas. Oh yeah, it was like PC zone. Let's put something different in the O. That's me. That kind of thing's me. Let's put something different in the O. Let's have a football. And then oh, let's have a little tiny competition in the in the football. That's me. I'm always saying we could put this other thing in here. We could put this other thing in here. There's sort of editorial touches, and that's what readers actually like. I mean, they've always had that kind of thing. But that was the smash. It's that the DNA of that goes right back to. Smash it's magazine. I, yes, I remember the strong. tiny com- compo. That was quite a cool little thing. And I, I think we. Yeah. it was nice to do that every issue. So that was a good idea. Yeah. You'd have had that kind of thing in your Sinclair, that cover, that and that, you know, that was around in the sort of like 80s kind of thing, having fun with it. I think people used to have fun on magazines. It all got a lot more serious by the late 90s. It was all much more commercial. So there wasn't so much scope for, for fun. Uh, but yeah, by the time we got to the third issue, it was looking good. Everybody, yeah, it was looking really, really good. People, it's just very busy. It's full of stuff, but that's the nature of it. It's meant to be. People just wanted screenshots, tips. You know, it was not much you could do to make it beautiful, really. I do remember we had a another redesign in about two thousand and four, maybe. No, sorry, no, no, no. Well, only a couple of years later, actually. It was yeah, it was around two thousand and two, two thousand and three. It was only a small redesign. And that was that was just a case of the editor disappearing for a couple of months to work with a separate art editor upstairs, I think. But I, mm. I do remember, um, from our point of view on editorial, we kind of got a bit, it was too busy almost. It, it, was, it was kind of claustrophobic, I think. And I think we just wanted a little bit of space in there, breathe. But, um, but you know, the yeah. re- but that's not what the, and that's why I always get brought in because people have gone down that route and then they'd realise people stopped buying it because as I was taught on Smash Hits where I would try to do that kind of thing. Mark Ellen would say, what's all that white space? You could land Concord on it. 
<laughs> it takes a bit windy, which would mean there's too much white space, or what's all that white space? You could land Concord on it. Oh, I'm, oh where also my boss, other boss was uh, Neil Tennant before he went off to join the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah. Oh, wow. People would say to you, that layout's horrible. It's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. People were just really, you know, harsh in those days. <laughs> I remember being made to cry many a time in my junior design days. That's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Who designed that? Ooh, it's me. <laughs> so, oh, um, yeah, that's that's why you, you learn to be tough, you know, and uh, designers just have to follow your designs. But, yeah, white space is all very well, but people don't buy a PC Games magazine for white space. They buy it for information. Yes, true. Well, I suppose these things just, just, just change uh, fashion, don't they? In and out some days. You it's know. Different, it's different kinds yeah. of magazines. If it's an avant-garde sort of thing like Wired or, you know, uh, some kind of more conceptual kind of tech magazine, yeah, they expect to see nice. I think there is room for nice layouts within a PC Games magazine, but that comes from the editor saying, okay, well, we're going to have like break it up. We're going to have these very, very dense pages, and then we're going to have some open pages with nice kind of think pieces or whatever, or some kind of article with a big picture. And it has to be flat planned like that from the from the start. I mean, Mac user always used to be like that, but it comes from the editor more than the designer. It's pacing. Okay, so so we had in a situation where Zone's doing well. Zone actually went to became the top selling PC Games mag um, after that redesign. Mm. Um, for a Good. while, it was. Uh, I mean, there weren't any awards or anything, but I remember it being like in the, in the trade magazines at the time. Everyone was raving about it. Um, so you know, jo- great job, well done, and everything. Thank you, by the way, belatedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm proud. Of, I'm proud of it. I've always thought it's good, and especially the Laura, the Lara Croft ones. It always takes three issues, three issues to find itself, and it's of its very of its time. So, so what what did you do next then? Well, bizarrely, what's next was Mark Hyam went off to um, Future Publishing, and they got me down, and they were relaunching a, or launching a guitar magazine, Total Guitar. And amazingly, they got me down there and they paid for me to stay, like have a flat in Bath three months to do the design. And that was another really, really, that was another what I think of one of the best things I ever did. Again, it was a typical, very uh, late 90s kind of very crammed informational magazine. But it did have some Mm. really nice photographic spreads and things in it because obviously guitars are nice. I managed to get backgrounds of baked beans and things in. Yeah, it's a nice total guitar. So I did that for three months. I'm looking at it now. Um... Yeah, so did, so so it led to work with Mark Heim, who was a really good editor. Mm. Um, so I did that for three months and then came back to London. And um, then I think really the next thing was just decided to set up in a, a studio with Duncan Hemphill. So we worked together in a studio for three years. But then that was blighted by 9-11 and we were sitting in our studio, which we had a fast... At that point, you could watch, you know, like we were watching online TV. Duncan was literally like watching the news online. And the Twin Towers went down and Duncan said, there goes our business. And there did, did go our business. So, so we stopped doing so, that. So, so what, sorry, I'm curious, what were you doing then if, if it was tied up with? See, we like, we redesigned um, a interiors magazine for Daily Mail group. That was a truly horrible job. But, but how did, how did um, 9-11 change, change things for you? It just, it just affected the economy. You know, there was just less work around okay. uh, people. It's the end of an era, really. You know, the end of the happy 90s. Um, yeah, 90s was so positive. You'd had the, you know, Iron Curtain had come down. Everything, we were in Europe. It was already positive. Then, uh, you know, <laughs> Tony Blair got in. It was, things were looking up. Rave, it was just all really nice. Uh, but, you know, by the end of the decade, things had started to go, you know, things had got a bit toxic and everything. Yeah. And, you know, then 9-11, that's not good. 
um, you know, there was just less work around the economy sort of was, was, was getting worse. And we'd be working in book publishing with more than magazine and also magazines, you know, because the internet was impacting everything. That's the other thing. Oh, the best thing we did, of course, so where that does lead then, so me and Dunk, when we were doing, it's confusing because Duncan Hemphill's my business partner, Duncan MacDonald is my late brother. Duncan Hemphill, me and Duncan Hemphill. So one of the really excellent people on Dennis Publishing was, of course, David McCandless, Macca. Mm, yes. Um, oh, can I just mention one other thing? And I think this, I can't remember which mag it is, and it probably is a game zone and not a PC zone. But in one of the early 90s mags, there's a photo of my brother, Duncan, leading a giant box around the streets on a string. And the giant box is a box that had a filing cabinet. So obviously this box has got some legs coming out. So my brother's leading this giant, don't ask me why a computer games magazine would have a photo of somebody leading a giant box around on a piece of string, but it did. And inside that box was Daniel Pemberton, who is now an absolutely top famous movie music writer. Yeah, he's a really top movie music composer, Daniel Pemberton, Pembers. But he was just like work experience on one of these mags. And uh, he got the job of walking it around inside a giant box while my brother led him on a string. So there you go. <laughs> Nobody else will know that. I'm just putting that down for the record. Daniel Pemberton was once in a giant box for a yeah, Dennis photo shoot. Anyway, so David McCandless of that era as well. So he went on to be you know, successful. And hmm. Macca was um, working for BBC World Productions. And he was working, he was contracted to do a website. There was this program, and was, you know, the internet was really big news at this point, early noughties, 2001, 2002. And... Um, there was a TV program on BBC Two they were doing called Attachments, and it was by this famous bloke who'd done Kathy Come Home, and he had this um, mm-hmm. dead now, I can't remember his name, and he had this production, he had this company called World Productions, and they took it really seriously. So because this show was about these people working on a website or something, they literally had a website that you could go on, and Macca created the website, and the website was called See Through. And me and Duncan designed the website for him, um, kind of a weird thing to do and one of the things on the website was he got my brother so my brother at this point had kind of disappeared off off the scene had gone down to Worthing and was somewhat incommunicado and um people were trying and um Mac just wanted to use him he he convinced Duncan he my brother just suffered from depression he was just quite depressive basically and uh, he needed needed, Duncan needed kickstarting and so he got him to write a weekly he wanted him to write like a weekly diary installments of a story and my brother actually rose to the challenge and he did do it and this was south, his book south coast diaries this was how it started right as a series of articles on this see-through website and uh, but it was just totally out of duncan's head you know he just wrote he was just a brilliant writer he just wrote this thing and i think because it was episodic he could sort of do it and macca was just really really harsh just made him kept on and on and on at him to do it so he did do it so it's actually thanks to Macca that Duncan actually wrote a book he had many books in him he really did he had so many ideas once he'd done that he had some brilliant ideas but uh, you know didn't live to do them um so yeah so we worked on so we worked on that we did some magazine redesigns and then that was a major project doing the see-through uh, website for Dunk for Macca another thing was you know that one of the people in this attachments um show was David Walliams, the now famous David Walliams, and he wasn't no he wasn't well known then. He was playing he played the web designer in it. And it was also when digital cameras had just come in. And um I we had to do shoot, like I art directed a photo shoot uh, of various characters and David Walliams was one of them. So as well as telling 
uh, as well as directing uh, Charlie Brooker to go and make a video on a beach, I also was responsible for directing David Walliams to pose for this photographer. He was very good, actually, um, running around. I've got these photos of David Walliams running around on this thing. It was the roof of a multi-story car park or something. It might be the South Bank Centre. Wow. Oh, no, it was the roof of our studio, maybe. Anyway, yeah, David Walliams, who knew? And he went on to be really, really famous. This is the weird thing. All these people go on to do... There's so many people who've gone on to do so really, really well in magazines, you know, from pet shop you know from neil Tennant yeah. and the pet shop boys at smash hits to someone like you know david walliams um obviously charlie brooker macca yeah so yeah. so so we worked with so we worked with we worked with macca and then um then we kind of went off our our separate ways i ended up uh, launching with this guy steve bush who'd programmed the um the uh, conference that you remember so well we ended up launching a really really good art magazine that ran for two years and was the biggest selling fine art magazine it was the biggest selling fine art magazine in tape modern it was just a really good mag and then that ended with a bang in the financial crash and these days i work when i work on magazines i work in the fine art area all right so you, all right so you completely specialize now I don't specialize but that's where i've moved you know, like i say graphic design is a career that you can move to the areas that you like mm. And I enjoyed fine art. And so, you know, and so I'm now work on, because I edited, I, I didn't design this magazine. I ran it. Oh, I edited right. okay. it. I launched it with, you know, with direction from the publisher, Steve Bush. It was his idea and we did it together. But there was one in Australia, which he ran, and one in the UK, which I completely staffed and ran. And, um, you know, art directed, but I had a designer, uh, you know, hired all, you know, writers, staff, everything. Um so that just then got me obviously contacts in the fine art world. So I've ended up, and then people that I hired ended up giving me work. That's how it works in magazines. So um, yeah, these days I just freelance like I always did. So no, no, no offers of computer game magazines anymore. I assume. I don't even. I wouldn't even know anything about it. I wouldn't be interested <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. I look back at Dennis though. It was fantastic. I love Dennis Publishing. It was a really, really good place to work. Um, I just it was like a weird mad campus and that came from the character of Felix Dennis basically yeah it just had so many really intelligent people across all the different magazines Felix kind of ran it with very light touch um but there were lots of talented people there and everything um they just had a good culture it was like a weird uh more like a campus really than a, than a company it's interesting the way you, you phrase it um when I was speaking to Teresa um a while back, she was saying, because uh, I, I asked her what was it that made Dennis Games Magazine special, and um, and and like you say, it was, it was Felix's light touch. It was the fact that he would just let you get on with it, whatever that was, as long mm. as you didn't cross the line, and <laughs> you know, and upset him in some way, um, and he didn't take a particular interest in the magazine. He'd just let you get on with it, and, and it just allowed everyone's personalities, whether it was writer, designer, to to come through it ended up building a good culture but you know he he was a hippie really he'd started in the in the in the 60s his book i read his, his book it was about his career it was really good um yeah and when i i first actually first worked there long before um your sinclair because i was at kingston poly as it was then i did graphic design it was a very good uh, art art college and one of the people two years above me jimmy egerton who's uh Teresa's husband he ended up as an art editor at Dennis and so I think it was really years you know like the early 80s or something I got a bit of freelance there just running around in a very hot summer doing stuff but people said to me oh Dennis and another friend of mine worked there for quite a while 
And they said, oh, the thing about Dennis is they, the, the drugs are stored in the filing cabinet under D for drugs. It's that kind of a place. There's literally D for drugs in the filing cabinet because it was very druggy. And that would be the late 70s, early 80s. I, I've never taken drugs. It doesn't really interest me. By the time I got there, I wasn't ever aware of it. I guess it was there if you wanted to take the drugs. But I think it had moved on a bit by that point. So it did. It was very hippie-ish and uh, druggy at one point. Um, you know, and they started off doing really techie computer mags. It was the first place I ever came across a fax. My friend said, oh, they've got this machine. And, like, if you put something in it in London, it comes out in New York. I said, no, no, that can't be possible. Such a thing can never <laughs> exist because I've never heard, <laughs> never heard of it. It's like the early 80s. And so, wow, there's this thing, and it prints pictures in a different country. It's like a <laughs> it's like a matter transporter for yeah, tech. it's like Star Trek. Um, yeah, literally. So that, but that Dennis was the first place. They just they were the first with everything. They were the first, you know. You know, when I went there, oh, we're, we're working on the computer. We're designing on computers. They were the first with everything. So it was just that whole kind of late sixties, seventies, sort of techie, druggy kind of vibe, and it just carried on into the eighties and the nineties. I mean, that's before my time, but that was the culture that it came out of, and I guess it was still there. And Felix was a very astute, you know. I mean, mm. the people there were good. He knew if the magazines weren't doing well, he would change them. That was why, I guess, PC's own got changed. And I remember he would come up with the names because Zero was his name. They were going to call it something else. And he said, no, we're going to call it Zero. I thought, oh, that's a really, really good name. I never really met him once. I remember he gave a dinner for us all and he just held court. He just literally he was very interesting, but he just literally never stopped talking. It was just anecdote after anecdote. It was very, very interesting. Um, no, I, I only met him once, and that was when I was walking down a corridor, and I was f- aware of this presence behind me, who I didn't really recognise. But I, you know, when you let a door close behind you, and you you think, should I have done that? And I quickly went back and opened the door again, and he and I and then I realised it was him, and he just went, "Good boy," <laughs> and walked <laughs> off. I was once in the li- I was once in the lift with him, and I just thought, "Oh, this is scary." But I also remember actually my the art mag that Art World that I ran. When it got closed down, because of lack, like, basically the publisher just uh, got involved in some kind of court case and just closed it down overnight, removed the funding, and it wasn't in profit at that point. Um, we were trying to save it and find other people to publish it, and so we went to Felix Dennis, and he got they got really, really Felix got really, really close to um, like saving the Start magazine and financing it, but he had the good sense to, to actually not do it because it clearly wasn't it was a good magazine, but it's, it can be good and sell a lot and still not make money. And it wasn't making money. So uh, he decided not to do it. But, yeah, that was good. He got quite – I still never actually spoke to him. It was all through his lieutenants and things. But, yeah, he was a good bloke. Okay, if we can go back then to, to the start of Zone and, and talk about – your brother Duncan, Duncan McDonald, who, yeah, yeah, who yeah. obviously sadly died in, in 2017. Um, yeah, 2017. I've, I've, spoken, yeah. I've spoken to a few people recently, and, and whenever the subject of Duncan comes up, it's well, everyone uses the phrase that he was like the soul of the magazine. Um, mm, not just nice. Bobby PC's own, but Dennis Games magazines. Um, and people tried to emulate his writing. They tried to kind of write like him, mm. they, you know. Um, I suppose he's come to represent almost as much as, you know, Dennis's magazines, almost as much as Felix, I suppose. Um, do you think he was aware of that? Oh, Duncan was just a right, typical writer. Like, you know, you get these good writers and he was just sui generis or however he's pronounced. He was of himself. He just didn't copy it from anywhere else. He just was a character. 
Um, and he started working at your Sinclair because, you know, he was like in his bedroom. He was just really, he was really good. He could draw. He's just really, really funny. He could draw funny cartoons and write. Well, he was sort of influenced by things like the Furry Freak Brothers. You can actually see that in his drawings. Yeah. Um, but he had this whole sort of, although he's younger than me, he had this whole concept of sort of 60s concept of being an outsider. He read too many uh, sort of um, Easy Rider type magazines, um, which didn't set him in very good stead because he felt he had to be outside of the man. And I think that was part of his problem, which is why Dennis kind of seated him. But anyway, so he'd had a, a job at a, uh, an advertising agency and had done well, but he just didn't like it. He just left. Like I, my family, we just we're all freelance and we all just walk away from things. Um, and so he he um, just walked away from this job and was living in his bedroom. But he was reading your Sinclair, which was new at that point. He got massive, you know, he was programming his own games. So he'd be programming games and you know, he was quite young at this point, sending them in and uh, writing funny letters. And I think they just thought, well, we've got this, this bloke's really good. Let's just get him to actually work for us. So that was good. So they got him to actually. Were you work already at Dennis them. at this point? No, uh, this is when I was at Smash Hits. Smash Hits, okay. So I was just working at Smash Hits. Duncan's two years, two and a half years younger than me. Um, he was born in 61. Um, so he so he was working on, and he literally was on the staff at that point. Uh, he, I think he actually had a staff job. I and mean, he had this orange camper van. He used to just drive up and park around the back of Rathbone Place. And he just had millions and millions of parking uh, tickets in the window because he never paid them. And I think it was registered a false address. He could do that in those days. And then he'd park it after three because he'd say, oh, well, the warden's never come down. So he would sort of, you know, live out this van and work at, in the original Your Sinclair office. Um, and, then, you know, it was just a nice team. And he was just very, very funny. That's why he would do things like lead Daniel Pemberton around in a box on a piece of string. And they just all bounced off each other. I wouldn't say, even though he obviously was funny, I wouldn't say he was the soul because there were a lot of good people there. I mean, Macca was really good. There were just so many... It was just the whole team and the way they all interacted together. You know, and David Wilson and Amaya Lopez, they were just really funny, clever people, and they were very instrumental in the whole culture of that time. Um, and they all just got, got on with each other. Um, Jackie Ryan, who was a sub, you know, it was a whole team. It wasn't just uh, the writers. Um, and so, but I think Duncan very quickly went freelance and then would just contribute freelance. So as they launched new things, you know, he would he would be involved and like all people who work on magazines, always like their pet freelance writers who are always eccentrics, but just turn up. So Duncan would just turn up when he felt like it. And I guess it'd be fun to have him in the office and he would come up with ideas and, you know, do all these different random, um, you know, he'd go out and try, you know, if it's a driving game, he'd go out and do some driving or something, you know, and he would always write his really, he'd spend ages. I mean, he was very serious about his writing. He'd, take, he'd spend ages writing his copy and it was always really, really perfect and he really cared for it. And he'd always get it in on time. But no, that was what he did. So he was really just a very good freelance writer that they had. But he definitely, you know, he was the cut above most, I think. I think when, um, you just said, when you just said he always got his copy in on time, I think. <laughs> I think he did. I'm I, guessing he did. Maybe he needed I'm, I'm sure. No? I'm sure I've heard he's, people, people have said that he's probably the, the worst at getting his copy in on time. Oh, that's, that's probably true. <laughs> okay, I'm wrong. He was the worst at getting his copy in. He did always get it in in the end, though. Oh, it was always worthwhile. Was always... Yes. Yeah, that might have been later. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, obviously, if he'd ne- he hadn't got it in, they wouldn't have continued to use him because if somebody just doesn't get their copy in, you just don't you just don't use them. And he used to, like, do the letters pages. There was a very famous, also late writer on Smash It called, um... oh, I don't know, senior moment now, um, Tom Hibbert. Tom Hibbert was a brilliant writer on Smash Hits. He interviewed uh, Margaret Thatcher, amongst others. He used to be 
answer their letters and he was called black type and it just had this real personality he was very influential and he he influenced my brother um similar sort of sense of humor so that would have been another another influence it was again that sort of smash it feel um oh. but yeah so duncan just carried on duncan was just a thread that went through all the different mags but he didn't he was not somebody who would sit in an office and work he had two nasty accidents that were, came about through writing articles and I can't remember they probably were the zones I can't remember which magazine he did one article where he went up in um, an airplane or something but um oh no the first that's right he did stock car racing and it was a bit stupid nobody else I have heard I think I've heard this one but carry on yeah he went off to do this stock car racing but the people who did stock car racing really were criminals they were really evil and they set him up and they put him in a really horrible car. He had no protection. And then they all came at him and just really tried to hurt him. And they did. He ended up having a really nasty crash and he hit his head really badly and he concussed himself. And for ages after that, probably a couple of years after that, he wasn't the same. He used to say he couldn't like get his key into the, he said, I can't get my key into the lock. I just can't do it since I had the accident and other things. He just, he'd seemed a bit different. He wasn't quite the same. I feel like he really got a brain injury. Um, and then he did another thing. And then after that, like his head was a bit loose. He did some other thing that involved flying. And this plane suddenly plummeted very, very quickly. And I think, and it again, he, he said it felt like it did something to his brain. He felt like his brain moving his head because the plane went down so quickly. So that probably exacerbated whatever happened. And I've got to say, I always felt that he was never quite the same. He's still right and everything. Um, but he was just a bit more paranoid. He just got a bit more paranoid. And he did suffer from depression. You know, he would have said it, but he, he just, my whole, my whole family does. A lot of writers suffer mm. from depression. You know, and he wasn't very sociable, really. And then when all of his friends, he really liked all the staff, it was the Paul Lakin crew. So once the Paul Lakin crew went, it was like his friends had all gone. So he just didn't have the interest in going there anymore. He liked that team. Right. And he didn't feel part of the new team. So that's why he kind of wandered away. But he still had, you know, they were happy to use him. He had a weekly column. He had Mr. Cursey. He had a weekly column, which he enjoyed writing. It was almost self-destructive behavior. He, he actually left the... Uh, so it was after Paul Aiken um, and Lawrence Scottford. It was um, uh, John Davison and Jeremy Wells. Um, and he was he was part of that crowd. So and, and Maka was still very much part of that crowd as well. So he was part. He liked Mac, Maka was his friend, but I don't think he felt like part part of it. He did. Maka was part of the original crowd, yeah. but I don't think he felt like. Oh, he was getting old. He probably thought he was getting too old, or they were younger than him. But um, the times were changing again. He didn't. He didn't really keep up with the technology. He wouldn't really. He he went down to. He just he had a flat in London, and it was like an ex council flat. And it was really cheap, and he could have carried on living there. But he just decided to give it all up and go down to Worthing. I tried to talk him out of it. For you, no, you've got, I'm going to give up the column. I said, you've just got regular income. You can live on that. It's enough to live on. You can live on. No, I'm giving everything up. He just didn't want to do anything. He just went down to Worthing, gave up his column, mm. went on the dole, which is why his book's about being on the dole, went, because he wouldn't mm. take any jobs. Literally ended up on hardship allowance, ended up on punishment dole, the least amount you could get, not enough to live on. He lived this incredibly frugal life down on the coast. He didn't keep up with technology, which meant he wasn't really on the internet. He'd say, oh, no, I owe money to this person. I owe money to that person. I can't, you know. It was kind of the early days as well. So he had a crappy phone. This is why he was quite hard to keep in touch with. And then he almost, then he didn't even want to see any. I felt like I had to be his gatekeeper because people would want to see Duncan. And I knew he didn't really want to. And I think he just felt ashamed because he just felt like, oh, he should be successful, but he wasn't. 
And then Macca really, really, you know, helped him by getting him to write this book. He did enjoy that. And Macca got his magnum opus out of him. So that's the early noughties. So things went up a bit then. You know, he wrote this book. I thought, oh, he still has got it in him. I wasn't sure he'd be able. I thought, I don't know, this knock on the heads, you know, made it impossible for him to write. Um, so he wrote this website. And then he turned it into a book. I think, again, Macca was quite um, instrumental in just encouraging him to turn it into a book, South Coast Diaries. And South Coast Diaries, it was 2002, got a publisher. You know, uh, um, I can't remember how, but um, literally an agent found Duncan. He didn't have to go and find an agent. And a literary agent found him. You know, that's very oh, rare. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. A literary agent found him. And that's why the book finished, because he got to a stage where a publisher, like a local publisher, wanted to publish it but i'm saying they were just they were a national publisher but they were based on the south coast and um and i think he got a bit disheartened because then you know he just wasn't very good at dealing with authority he was terrible at dealing with authority and so you know the editor wanted to do certain things he did go along with them he's never quite happy with a few of the things that were done at the beginning of the end of the book and he had to correct it so many times he kind of lost track of it but anyway he did finish it and i just i designed the cover this was a nightmare i'm going down there and working on a cover with him and I think it was 2003, and it was all about to go ahead. But the thing is, because of the subject matter, it had, these days, it would probably be considered good because it was positive. One of the plot points was there was a boy band, but it was a Down syndrome boy band. Yeah. So it was always Down syndrome kids, but they were in a boy band. It was treated sympathetically. They're very happy and successful. Yeah. But they were really scared of this, and Dunk didn't want to take it out. And they, I think they were looking for an excuse at the very last minute to not publish it. And then the first Iraq war broke out and it was literally two weeks before it was due to be published. And they said, oh, we're not going to publish it because there's a war. It's the wrong kind of thing to put out. So that really threw Duncan into, you know, into despair, I guess. And the book just sat there, but he was still under contract, you know, with them for two years, I think. So he just didn't do anything. He just lived on the dole and didn't really do anything. He'd play computer games. Just he could always amuse himself. He was just happy to go down the beach. Just he lived like a traveler, you know, but he had a flat, but mm. very little money. And he was still funny when I'd, I'd go down there and visit him and everything. Um, and then it came out of contract. So then he just, anyway, so the book's just sitting around. And then another agent found him. Can you imagine? Like, because there was like two proof copies of this book doing the rounds. And somehow some literary agent had come across a copy of it, and just got in touch with Duncan out of the blue and said, oh, this book's brilliant. It's the best. It's like Reggie Perrin. It's the best thing I've mm. read since the rise and fall of Reggie Perrin. I want to publish it. So then Duncan had a lot of contact with this agent. But I think he didn't really hit it off with the agent who didn't really quite. Duncan was quite difficult and he didn't quite realise how difficult Duncan was and just thought Duncan was more mainstream than he was. And I think wanted Duncan to write, you know, he was most writers have jumped this, just thought he was more of a jobbing writer and said, oh, well, look, I want to write this book about um, I'm really into James Bond. We could do this funny book about James Bond. And Duncan just thought, I hate James Bond. I know nothing about it. Didn't feel he could say that. And just I think it just scared him off. So he started right. avoiding this agent who obviously the agent probably just gave up on it. So two completely different agents both found this book. Um, then my mum, oh, then, I, then I, he was just living his life. Then my mum got very ill with cancer and we spent, this is in about 2006 to 2009, our life was taken up by my mum having this recurring cancer and we both had to look after her and we both sort of moved into, you know, we were both freelancing. So we would alternate living in her house and looking after her. And so, uh, and then she died. And then, so my brother, we inherited some money from the sale of her house. So at this point, my brother had some money because he didn't have to be on the dole anymore. So his standard of living went up very slightly, but he didn't, he didn't move. Um, 
I'd say really, but he just didn't really, yeah, it's, it's sad. He just didn't really, he didn't really, this, it just, this book, you know, South Coast Diarist, he finished it. And yet it kind of broke him as well, I think, because hmm. it was really brilliant. And I used to say, well, we need to pump in mom, you know, one of these days mom will die. We really need to get it out before she dies. And then, no, we didn't. Um, and then the next thing I know, Duncan's died. And then I got the book and then, but he obviously still valued and you couldn't really talk to him about it. You couldn't, you know, I couldn't say, but you couldn't ask him about it. I tried. And I tried saying, oh, he said, oh, I've got the wrong kind of this. I got the wrong kind of that. So I said, you know, I've sent you a printer now. You've got the printer. And he said, oh, well, it's the wrong kind of sunshine. And I thought, yeah, it's the wrong kind of sunshine. Okay, you're not going to do this. Fine. <laughs> I think he'd just gone into a big depression and couldn't do it. You know, even famous writers have to be like Douglas Adams. He used to have to be locked in a room to finish his book. So it's not, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, so after he died, there it was, his book, all his manuscript. Because he'd been through it all again with his second agent. He'd gone through it again. Uh, but yeah, he just had lost tracks. Everybody wanted to make their changes. So I had this kind of manuscript. I had it all on disc. I'd always kept backups of it because he was so you know, unreliable, Duncan. I just thought, you know, he's going to lose all this. I need this real proper good literary work. I need to keep it. So then I spent, and then I spent a couple of years just thinking, oh, you know, it, it ruled my life for three years, really. Oh, I've really got to edit this book and turn it into a book. It was written. I didn't need much editing. I did a little tiny bit of a sensitivity read, like there were some, you know, non-PC terms that got taken out, um, just corrected lots of factual errors where he put Worthing Road names in when it was actually, you know, Hast it should have been a Hastings Road name. <laughs> he had a plot point where um, some woman was in Africa and she had to escape and she escaped on a train, but this is Chad, there are no trains in Chad, so I'd change it to a bus. So it was just stuff like that, but the actual writing was as it was. And... Um, and then I eventually, but, you know, I just published it on Amazon. I just did it on KD, because I do self-publishing on Amazon. I thought I'll just try self-publishing it, put it on, put it out on Amazon. People might find it, but I'm not, it's all about keywords and marketing. I'm not regular at that kind of thing. So it's out there, but I've never really, and I know that it just needs marketing. And it just does need a proper publisher. And I was thinking, and I never really, after I told Macca that Duncan had died, I think he was a bit overwhelmed and we, you know, because I used to be in contact with Macca, and I yeah. thought, oh, maybe Macca would be quite helpful. But then I never really was in contact with him about it, so that didn't happen. Maybe this is where it'll happen. I don't know. Maybe I think the book's better than it is, but I think it's a brilliant book. Whenever people read it, they they love it. Two agents would not have discovered it of their own accord if it wasn't a brilliant book. Yeah. Um, it's so sad, because after Duncan finished it, he had a brilliant idea for this series, because he just liked writing characters, series of characters. <laughs> it was like, he liked writing, and he really, really, he really, really loved the is it a Patrick O'Brien books who wrote all those seafaring books based in the 19 um based in the Napoleon Wars and he would write exactly in sort of Jane Austen style speak and my brother would talk like that he'd sort of talk in sort of 18th century speak and he was gonna he had this whole it was about pirates he had a whole series of books lined up about pirates on the <laughs> in the 18th century it doesn't sound funny but it was funny when he explained it so um but yeah, he didn't get to do it how much of I mean, when I read the book, because I used to like I, I used to live in Hastings, so I was I I couldn't really picture any of the places in it. So so the fact that it's yeah, it was, it was actually worthy, it probably explains it. But reading the book, I know it's it's him. It's all it's kind of autobiographical in a sense, but obviously it's very out there in terms of a lot of the characters and and where they come from and what and what's happened to them. It's very yeah, difficult. The... It's very difficult to get a sense of where the truth is i suppose there's a lot more truth in it than you would think only the things that really couldn't happen didn't happen i mean never there was never a down syndrome boy band 
but near all of the people are based you know they are based on real people um you know if you knew him we all know i don't know who they all are but my i've got a younger brother who knows you know some of the cast of characters that he recognizes he just recognized and they're always amalgams of various people um but and even some of the re- all the building sort of tales or just sort of being on the dull tales there's a lot of truth in it even things like this submariner i remember i was watching something on telly and there was some bloke and i thought oh my god maybe that's the maybe that's geordie the submariner who builds his weird hut um because down in Worthing, you know you got there's um there's this kind of river where all these people live on boats and so on. Yeah, it was all based on on, on Worthing. He lived in Worthing for a long time. He only lived in Worthing because he couldn't afford Brighton, <laughs> like, like most people who live in Worthing do. <laughs> and we were aware of Hastings, and it just Hastings at the time, it still is, it had a terrible drug problem. It was the cheapest place on the south coast, and that's why he set it in, in Hastings. Yeah. But if, even like where they go to fly, he always goes to fly his... Uh, his plane and they go to a place called Sisbury Ring or something but again that's really near to Worthing it's not somewhere you particularly quite a long way from Hastings so all right oh wait so he had a plane then did he had his model plane model plane the thing is I should say we had a very unusual childhood um my father was a pilot um partly the book is sort of even about our background so my dad had a very poverty stricken stricken upbringing not um scummy but just poverty stricken and because it was like the days of national service he went into the national service because he's clever he ended up being a top pilot he was like a squadron leader and he ended up being a squadron leader on warships then he left and he was um did air sea rescue at Culdrose in cornwall so we were always moving around and we lived in cornwall and our dad had this very glamorous job he had the second ever Porsche in England. He imported Porsche into England. This is in the early 60s. And he'd go back to the car and there'd be a crowd of people around it. And he'd be driving around the country lanes at 120 miles an hour. I'd been in, we'd been in helicopters before we'd been on a bus. Uh, you know, my dad would fly us around. Then we moved over to Africa. My dad was the pilot for the, um, the first ever prime minister of Africa. And then we came back home from school one day and we were told, oh, we've got to go back to England tomorrow because your dad's boss has just been assassinated. So this uh, prime minister got shot and we had to literally leave for England the next day. But my dad had to stay out there for three months. And so we, and then we, we lived in Cornwall. We, we just lived all over the place. And then my dad came back and then he got a job demonstrating helicopters. Oh, he was involved. He flew around Archbishop Macarios for some reason of uh, Cyprus. I don't know what that was. And then he ended up sort of like, demonstrating helicopters and he was demonstrating a helicopter at the paris air show which is a very famous air show they have every year mm. and um we were watching blue peter <laughs> it's literally 1969 so just before literally just before the moon landing which is in all the news and uh, we're watching blue peter and the phone rings and my mum comes in we're saying oh mummy mummy look at this these dancers on blue peter and she says i've got to tell you something i don't know how to say it but your father's just been killed oh, and my. then we were and on the news literally after blue peter there was my father's helicopter exploded on the news it was on the news we watched the six o'clock news as a helicopter pilot is killed when a helicopter explodes over um paris air show and so we saw it on the news so i don't really remember much about the moon landing because then you know, my dad had died and then we moved again so we had this very traumatic very weird quite well off but quite traumatic childhood um so the effect is, and if you look at Duncan's book, you know it ends with a helicopter, a remote-controlled helicopter landing on someone's head, and there's a there's an air show in it. We spent a lot of time at air shows. You know, my dad died at an air show. So you ask how autobiographical it was. Is that autobiographical? It is autobiographical. Gosh, wow! <laughs> I mean, my 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 dad was in the in the uh, military, and we moved around a, a lot, but not um, 
my dad was an accountant <laughs> in the Air Force. So it's you not find as a lot of that in the creative no, in the creative industries. You do find that people. A lot of there are a lot of people international kids. Yeah. Oh, when I went to art school, it was the first time I met my people. I, you know, everywhere I'd been, we moved. I moved. You know, I went to a different school every nine months. Yeah. So I never put down any roots. And uh, you'd always get teased for how you talked wherever you went. And uh, when I went to art school, suddenly it was the first time people who hadn't all grown up in the same place, and a lot of them had moved around. So there are a lot of people like that, but they don't meet until they get to their professional places of work, and then they all tend to wind up in the same kind of place. So, yeah. I just thought I'd put that on the record because it was an interesting background and it definitely is reflected in, in Duncan's book. That's what's interesting because such a lot in there does come across as very out there, very, you know, crazy almost. But, you know, it's it's got a grain of, you know, there's a grain of truth to all of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. More than a grain. It's 75, 75% of that is true. Um, I was talking to Stuart Shape a couple of years ago. Yeah, Stuart, yeah. And Stuart. Um, he first thing he said to me was, have you read the book? And everything in it is true. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Yeah, well, Stuart would say that. Yeah, he was, of course, he played this Colin Culk character. Um, yeah, he's Colin Culky, yeah. In, 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 on those videos that, that, that were on the cover disc, that piece of own cover disc. I mean... I mean, I, I think um, he, he said that they were college friends or school friends. Is that how they... Uh, Duncan didn't go to college. So, oh, well, they went to sixth form college. Um, I can't remember. Yeah, school friends. They were school friends. Yeah. From Rygate. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, okay. Yeah, but Colin Culk, and they do those videos that were on the CDs. And then Duncan, sadly, Duncan's not in them because he filmed them all. Yeah, yeah. And then Stuart would just go and do weird stuff. They're probably all on YouTube now, but I haven't dared to, to go and have a look, to be quite honest. I mean, was was Duncan all about ideas? Because I mean, I mean, a lot of people yeah. who read the magazine would have, you know, we know him from Mister Cursor. We know him from his reviews, half of which weren't about the game. Most of the time, they were about something else. Duncan was all about storytelling. It was all about stories. And even when, when he was a child, he's younger than me. He was just a compulsive liar. He literally could never, never tell the truth. But I think it's sort of like Boris Johnson. I think the truth didn't mean it was just a, everything was just a story to Duncan. And he was just brilliant on characters. And he was just completely, and he watched telly. He started using American words. Everybody does now. But he's just, uh, I used to do little magazines and I was a child and I get Duncan. I said, oh, Duncan's much funnier than me, though. I could kind of make it happen, but he would do the funny bits. Um, he just was a really good storyteller, but he had he didn't, wasn't very disciplined. So he had to have a, an arena for him where he could do it. And uh, Dennis was the only place that provided that arena. You know, but he felt safe in the arena of Paul Lakin. Hmm. And I just think, you know, and those people, but once they'd gone, then he didn't, yeah, he kind of wandered off from the playground. Oh, I see. So do you think, do you, well, I was just going to say, do you think Dennis was where he's happiest? Uh, he was probably just happiest on a beach in the afternoon, actually, not doing <laughs> anything. Duncan was, Duncan was happiest not doing anything, which I understand because I'm a bit like that, but I'm a bit more active. Um, so you did, there was a good, your last question was, what would Duncan, and find what I wrote. What, what would you think about us talking about him, yeah. I thought, well, if I'm being really honest, he'd be a bit paranoid, but he, because he just, he was just a bit paranoid. I think he smoked too much dope. He took a lot, you know, smoked a lot of dope in his time. And I think that makes you paranoid. I think that was one of the problems as you get older. Mm. It's fine when you're younger, but I just think it affects you. And I think he felt unnecessarily bitter, but he caused his own problems by being so, anti-authoritarian but he, he just couldn't help it. he was just quite a difficult character and he always had been even when he was a child he was quite a difficult character which you know a lot of writers are but so if he if he could hear us talking about him i was thinking well he probably wouldn't want us to be talking about it, saying oh no i don't i don't want to you know i don't want to be talking about me 
Um, and he'd be a bit paranoid about what we were going to say, but he'd also be pissed off that he wasn't here. It's sad because his life could have gone another way. Um, you know, like he, the Charlie Booker way, because he was as brilliant. I think that's the thing. All these other people were doing really well, like Charlie Brooker and so on, yeah. but they were just more had more ingratiating it wasn't done was horrible he was really really funny and sweet and nice he's just a really nice bloke but um he just wasn't very good he's probably more introverted he just he just didn't he just didn't have a, you know he wasn't able to sort of professionally ingratiate himself with people and he people who were just acting normally he would view as sucking up when it wasn't sucking up it was just trying to make your life a bit better so he just had this overly romantic view of being anti-establishment i think that was what scuppered him um, so anything that seemed to become structural or part of like the establishment or the man, he'd feel, oh no, no, I can't do that. I'm selling out. So it's kind of a weird hippie kind of viewpoint. Okay. Um, well, I, th- really I think was. yeah, I think when we talk about Duncan, some when we look back, a lot of us because we have spoken about Duncan in a couple of you know the, the Zone podcasts, and there's a, I think possibly a bit of a sense that um, that we kind of think that maybe he, he was lost. But I think when Phil, Phil South said something in, in one of the past class, he says, well, possibly he didn't want to be found, if you see what I mean. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he was lost. I think he just felt ashamed that, like, everybody else, he could have done better. He wasn't doing as well as he could have done, but he didn't really know what he had to do. He didn't want to do the things he would have had to do. Mm. And he'd done what he'd done. He'd put all this work into writing a book, but then somehow he didn't want to engage with the powers that be to make it happen. Mm. and he made it so hard to get in contact with him. I used to try, like, he was only on Twitter because I said, oh, you'd be really good at this. He had for a while, he would ring up, and he was a really, con- and okay. chat to the local radio. He was one of these people that would ring up and be really funny on a local radio station for a bit because it was a phone and it was an old technology. So I just think the fact he didn't have any money, he put him, but he deliberately put himself in that situation. That's the thing. We tried to talk him out of it, so it was willful. He deliberately did it. It was almost like somebody who goes and becomes a tramp. He didn't quite go that far or goes and lives in the van. It just I just think he found it too it's too stressful. I just think he found modern life too you know, he just found it too stressful, I think. He just didn't like the stress of having to deal with people and being professional. And it was easier just to hide away. And he lived in the fantasy world. He just lived in his fantasy world and the fantasy world comes out in his book. And it is sad. I had not my mum's sister committed suicide. Um, she suffered from such bad depression that she committed suicide. It runs in my family. When Dunk died, we had to wait for the uh, autopsy because we were worried he had committed suicide. For one day, I thought Duncan had committed suicide. And we were thinking, oh, maybe we should have, you know, it was so difficult to go down and try and help and you were worried what you would find. I was texting him. We were always in contact by text. Um, it was such a relief. They said, no, it was natural causes. You know, he had this burst uh, artery. Um, and so, you know, it was a complete relief um yeah so yeah that's the that's the truth of it but he definitely did suffer from depression and certainly these two accidents that injured his head at dennis i think that contributed to it because it was after that that he went a bit more weird and just wanted didn't want to do anything i just think he found it all a bit too hard and wanted to disappear he didn't want to write but wanted to disappear off and write his book which he did do but uh he was just one of these very un- i look back and i think you know he needed rebooting every five years and it was just so hard, and I would try. And I, I remember thinking maybe I should have gone back and tried to just reboot him five years earlier than I, you know, five years ago. But I, what can you do? I did what I could. Mm. So I, I, I really, really miss him. I'm very, very close. So it's not like he didn't have people who loved him. 
you know, we were very close. But I did feel like, you know, why he's, he just doesn't want to see these people anymore because, you know, that Charlie Booker's famous and he isn't and he feels like he should be. But, he you know, he hasn't got the wherewithal to do what's necessary to, to go there. So, yeah, that's definitely part of it. But he definitely didn't want to be found either. Yeah. Probably why even he set his book in Hastings and not in Worthing because it really is Worthing. <laughs> Well, that was a good decision anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you in Hastings. Hastings. Got out the market. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time on this and, and <laughs> going into <laughs> such great detail of your um, uh, long and illustrious career. <laughs> no, yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. It's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been wonderful to talk to you. So thanks thanks for your time. Yeah. And um, Well, I hope there's something useful in it. <laughs> it's good to get it on the record. Maybe somebody will be interested somewhere. Maybe if Duncan's book ever gets famous, it'll be useful. Well, let's hope we can do a little bit of something for that. Well, good luck with it. Thank you. See Cheers. Bye. Okay, bye. PC Zone's alive! Oh, well, who wants to live forever? <laughs> Oh, that's very long. Blimey, that's much longer. Well, I hope oh, I hope some of it's useful. It's such a nightmare having to edit this kind of thing when they're so long. I know from having I once interviewed Fish from Marillion, and he didn't stop talking for four hours. It was all really, really boring. So. <laughs>